Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. First, I'd like to welcome Lisa Feldman Barrett, uh, the author of Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, and a uh, great idea to add the half lesson. <laughs> uh, but uh, oh, my first question uh, for you is, is a pretty simple one. Um, you talk a lot about myth, busting the myths of the way people thought about how the brain worked, and we're going to go into that in more detail. But if you just had to ballpark the figure, what percent do you think we understand about the brain? Do you think that we are 25% of the way there, 5% of the way there, or 0.1% of the way there, given how much progress has been made in the last 40, 50 years? Well, what we understand, I think, depends on what we can observe. It really depends on our measurement tools. And so I think, given the measurement tools that we have, I would say we're probably maybe 25% of the way there. Um, but I'm, I say this really hesitantly because my guess is that as measurement tools improve, we'll discover things that we didn't know were even questions before, and that will reduce that percentage. So just to give you an example, um, there are these cells in the brain called glial cells, which are not neurons. And it was thought at first, it was thought all they really did was support neurons. Um, now people think of them a little bit like the dark matter of the brain because they do all kinds of really important things that we didn't know before, which really complexifies the story even more than uh, we, you know we originally thought. And it turns out they can even communicate with each other using neurotransmitters, although not in the same way as neurons. So, you know. Just when scientists think they're really uh, approaching, <laughs> you know, an explanation of something, um, you know, somebody else discovers something that, you know, rips open a whole new set of questions. And so um, that's why I'm being, you know, a little bit uh, no, that, that's, about it's, my answer. It's great. You're being scientific about it. Um, you know, I mean, some scientists are, some scientists aren't, but it really, it really is a project that we have, uh, you know, it used to be... Uh, uh, maybe a couple thousand people working on this. And now we have millions of people across the planet working on it. Uh, it's just a great, a great enterprise. And so I just wanted to get kind of an idea about how you thought about that. Another thing that you've mentioned in your book is uh, something as simple as, you know, we look at the light spectrum. Our eyes are designed to pick up a, a certain part of that light spectrum. That's not all that's going on. Um, and so when we're looking at the brain, the way we look at it now, we could be looking at, you know, a very small spectrum of what, of what, you know, the whole operation is. So, uh, complexity. You call it a complex mechanism. It's very, very good. So I think um, you say in your first lesson, or your first half lesson, I should say, um, that the brain did not evolve for thinking. It's a very nice, big, bold statement. I um, mean, you know, lots of people think that that's what it's for. And you make a lot of great uh, comparisons to other animal brains and so on. That's not nearly as uh, special as people have been pushing for a while. So why don't you talk a little bit about that some of the myths that you've brought down, and if you know, you know, we'll we'll talk about them each individually. But you can talk about the ones that you think that really need to be shelved. You know, as you know, and I think a lot of a lot of our listeners know, viewers know, you know, scientists approach a question through the lens of their own beliefs and uh, assumptions, and so a lot of neuroscience really initially approached the brain through the perspective of a very Western theory of mind, you know, what we believe 
how we believe minds work. And we were looking to the brain to try to explain how our minds work, but using the lens of this very Western idea that, um, you know, that we have rational parts of our brain, which are newly evolved, and we have emotional and instinctual parts of the brain, which are um, we inherited from um, other animals, and that the two are constantly at war with each other for control of our behavior. And this is how we judge how ethical someone is or how healthy someone is, really um, on the basis of like, how well does rationality kind of um, keep down or control, you know, our inner beast, um, that, you know, emotional beast brain that we have. And the reptile brain, I, right? The reptile brain and the, and the, you know, the, the so-called limbic system, which is um, limbic meaning border of the reptile brain um, for emotion. And I think the, um, what we know is that, that we certainly know that in Western societies, we value rationality. Um, but it turns out that, you know, most of the what's called the neocortex where where rationality was assigned a home isn't new, um, actually at all. And um, most animals uh, who are vertebrates, who have a backbone and a head um, uh, and senses like like ours, um, you know, share a very, very common brain plan um, and even though to the naked eye, when you look at the brain of a lizard and the brain of a rat and the brain of a human, they, to the naked eye, look very different. Actually, genetically, they're actually very, very similar, of course, with some, with, of course, with some differences. And if you go all the way back to a time when, you know, creatures um, on the earth um, didn't have brains, um, it's, you might not think you have to go back very far if you were just to look at, you know, <laughs> how that, things that's are. the last election. You're not talking about yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Um, but if you go all the way back, what you can see is that that brains evolved around the same time as bodies got larger and more complex and where um, simple mechanisms weren't really um, enough to control uh, the complex systems in a, in a body as it's getting larger and larger and larger. And as the as animals, as their environment or what we call their niche, you know, the part of the environment they care about as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and so, you know, you can never really say what evolution, um, what something evolved for. Um, but, but I think it's fair to say that the brain's most important job is to keep your body alive and well, because frankly, um, you can look at the evolutionary story and it's certainly consistent with that, but you can also just think, well, you know, um, if you, if your brain isn't controlling your body, you die. So I think, right. yeah, <laughs> pretty simple. Um, it's pretty simple. One, one, one thing you have in your book, which I found very interesting and we have a very different, uh, not, not you personally, but there's a very different attitude towards, uh, evolutionary theory from the 19th century, uh, when Darwin, uh, pushed his version forward. Um, and, and other people popularized it and, and, and didn't even make it what he was saying. But even so, um, you talk about the animal amphioxia, I think, I don't, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but, but it's from 500 million years ago. And you say it had something, not really a brain, but something starting to resemble a brain. Yeah. And, and then you said then evolution, you know, over time uh, changes. But 
Uh, one of the things that's very interesting about the way you described it is, first of all, that the brain is kind of uh, changes because of defective gene, not defective, but the genes don't reproduce exactly the right way um, because amphioxys still exists, right? So it's a very interesting that, you know, if you, if you say that it's, it's an ancestor, or at least we have a common ancestor with these very small animals, um, and it, it doesn't have to be this one, but all kinds of other small uh, animals, and they all still exist, then, then what are we doing here? You know, I mean, what, are, where, are we uh, like a, a, an offshoot that's really not important to the whole process? Because it, you kind of say DNA replicates. I mean, their DNA kept replicating. Um, and so it's interesting, how, how important are we? Are we the oddballs or, and, and the main stuff is going on at the one cell uh, you know, level? Because they're still, they're still all around and, and in much greater numbers than we are. So exactly. So there's a lot embedded in what you just said uh, that that is is worth really unpacking. But I think one point to make is that, and it's certainly not my point. I'm just echoing a point made by uh, Henry Gee, who uh, is a, a paleontologist. I think he's a paleontologist. Or, but anyways, he um, is um, has written about evolutionary biology, and um, actually, he's an editor at Nature, and he's written several really excellent books. But one of my favorites is called. Um, the accidental species, and he's really referring to us, to humans. And he really makes the point that evolution didn't aim itself at us. We are not the pinnacle of anything. Um, so the idea that evolution proceeds along um, a, a linear upward scale, which is referred to as a phylogenetic scale, um, where you know there are continual improvements that are occurring, is really um, not the right way to think about how evolution works. Um, so we are not the pinnacle really of anything except perhaps in our own minds. Um, you know, we, we, we're certainly special, but, but we also, there are lots of animals on this earth who have very special characteristics that we don't have and that we, that we actually really admire and we endow our superheroes with them. Um, and, and so I think it's important to understand that um, the way evolution works, uh, the way natural selection works is Every time, every cell in your body replaces itself. I can't remember if it's once every summer, I think once every seven years, once every 10 years, but, you know, but as cells replace themselves, that is, they replicate, um, the, their, the genetic material um, has an opportunity to mutate, that is to, to change slightly. And those slight changes, that, those, that variation is really what natural selection acts on. And what is, so what is natural selection? It's aspects of the environment that allow an animal to survive and thrive or, or not. And so, for example, amphioxus, the little amphioxus that I talk about, amphioxy in plural, those animals have not changed very much in like 400 million years, scientists think, because their environments actually haven't changed very much. So selection pressures on them have not changed. And as a consequence, they themselves have not changed. It's not very much. It's not the case that if you were to peek under the hood into their, the molecular genetics of their, of their genes, that you would see they're identical in every way to an amphioxus if we were able to catch one from 400 million years ago. But rather, um, the variation in that population remains somewhat stable because the environment that the animal is living in remains somewhat stable. 
And that's the only reason why um, uh, those animals, you can infer that th those animals haven't really changed tremendously, although there is a little bit of debate about how much they've changed. Um, and many, many, many creatures have died. Like we only, for example, chimpanzees are our closest cousin um, in the animal kingdom only because all the other species that were closer to us have perished. It's, there's nothing special about a chimpanzee other than that it survived as a species. So there, there are, we don't know how many species have perished, but, you know, pr probably trillions of animals have died between, um, you know, when, uh, when Amphioxus made its first appearance in the ocean and, and us. Um, and well, so it's such a different, it's such a different viewpoint on, on evolution, because actually all these animals that we came from, that we assume we developed from over time, they all still exist. I mean, and, and uh, sharks have been pretty similar for 300 million years and, and cockroaches too, and so on. And so some seem to get into a niche and they, they can just keep staying the same, but offshoots of them uh, adjust. And so it's a kind of an interesting thing. If we're all, if we all have a common ancestor, you know, uh, which one? I, and I, you, you mentioned too about this, uh, we're the pinnacle of evolution. That seems to be because Darwin had his ideas right after Hegel uh, had his ideas about, about where everything was headed. And, it has a lot to do with Western civilization and what we all thought, you know, and Europeans thought was that they were the hype because of the industrial revolution. So, well, I mean, I think you could probably, you, you would know better than I, but I think you can probably trace it all the way back to Aristotle, who really was the first, you know, the first phylogenetic scale. But I would say, you know, biologists are a little cagey about whether or not animals that we see now are the same as their ancestral forms. So I think it's, it's a little tricky to say um, that, that, that an animal is remains the same as it was millions of years ago and hasn't changed at all. It, I mean, there are ways to assess this and there are ways to, to estimate how much change has occurred. But um, when we look at a chimpanzee or a macaque or a rat or any animal, we're not looking at an ancient form. We're looking at a modern form that lives in, a, that lives in an environment, a niche, which is has selection pressures um, that that keep the variability within certain constraints. And actually, if you just left things alone, what you would see is that um, that genetic change is the rule. Variation is the norm. It's not the um, it's not it's it's not the oddball. So uh -huh. you know, beer makers know this, right? Beer makers know this because if you just leave the yeast alone, they mutate and mutate and mutate, and then you lose the taste of the beer. You actually have to find a way to stabilize the genetics of the population of yeast that you're using, or else the, the taste will change. And so what's remarkable is not that change happens. What's remarkable is when things stay the same. The fact that we have some genes that organize, that's kind of like the GPS for organizing cells in what's a head and what's a body and what's a tail. And the fact that we see some of those in invertebrates like flies, for example, that means that there's some very, 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 very strong selection pressure that all animals have been under that only allow those genes, animals with those genes to have survived and all the other ones who had mutations of those to um to have died yeah variation is the norm yeah first I, if i had known that you we were going to talk a little bit about beer we probably should have put it in the description we would have had an even bigger audience 
<laughs> but but uh, um, if we if we talk about uh, the evolution as 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 uh, this kind of much more elaborate idea, uh, it puts a different perspective. And we'll get back to the brain in a second. But it puts a different perspective on the climate change that human beings are creating because we're we're going to be putting pressure on all other animals to adjust to what we're doing, right? Yes. So the you know. If you think about it as a person, it might be horrifying, but if you think about it as a scientist, it's interesting that one of the things that humans can do that really other animals can do like much less, but humans do really in spades, is that we don't just adapt to the environment, we change the environment that we are adapting to. So other animals you know, um, add to the environment, like they might, you know, termites might build a nest or animal, you know, ants might build, you know, a mound with like tunnels under the ground. Um, humans beavers make a dam. Beavers make a dam. Humans don't just add to the world. Don't just modify the world as it is. We, we actually add new features to the world. Um, we basically have the ability to create reality in things where they didn't exist before, like money, for example, where we all impose a function on a little piece of paper and poof, it has that function. Um, and, uh, and, and as a consequence, um, you know, we don't just adapt to the world, we shape the world, we, and we, we shape the world in ways that affect our own evolution. So more so than other animals, we are able to actually shape the direction of our own evolution, even though we're completely unaware of, of doing it. And climate change is a really good example. And as a consequence, we're also shaping the evolution of other animals as well, um, you know, uh, for better or for worse. You, you talk a lot about how our, our culture uh, has an effect on the way we look at everything. And you, you mentioned how that affected people coming up with the idea of the triune brain, you know, the, all, all those ideas we're partially culturally based. And we, even as we talked about evolution, we can, you can tell looking back now that the 19th century other ideas affected the way people thought about evolution um, and, and where it was going. So um, you talk about the brain as a network. Now you say that's not a metaphor and you, you explain how the other ones are metaphors. And so I, I think it's a very uh, good thing to explain in detail why this is not a metaphor, but an actual um, physical reality that we're looking at. Yeah, I would say it's like a concept, actually, rather than a metaphor per se. So, when we say that um, that the, the that we have um, a triune brain, meaning a brain that evolved in three parts, so we have a, an inner lizard brain, you know, uh, for instincts, and we have a limbic system for emotion that lays on top, and then on top of that evolved. Um, uh, a neocortex, a cerebral cortex for rationality. Um, the idea there is um, that, you know, uh, the brain evolved like sedimentary rock, just adding layers on top. Or I, I personally like the birthday cake analogy, you know, so, you know, you, your inner beast is like a birthday cake. And then, you know, the cortex is like the icing on top of that already baked cake. Um, and that those are metaphors. We're saying this is like that. Um, when we talk about, you know, the brain, when we talk about brain wiring, we actually are using a metaphor because neurons are not wired together, literally. They're not soldered together, literally. If you have one, you know, one neuron here and one neuron here, there's actually a, 
a space between them called a, a synaptic cleft and chemicals are ejected from one neuron and are picked up by the other. And that's actually how neurons communicate with each other um, in part. And, and very, very and, quickly, it's amazing how fast it, they can send the neurotransmitters and move it along. I mean, because it's, it's a liquid form actually. So, right. So but when you, but when you look at, when you talk about the brain being a network, that's really more like a concept for describing. It's not a metaphor. You're not, when I talk about the brain being a, ne a network, uh, like, um, uh, you know, like, like the airport system being a network, that's a metaphor. You're saying, well, this, this is, you know, and so you're some of the, uh, some of what you describe about the, in the metaphor, you're able to use that description to um, reflect back onto the original thing that you're interested in. So when we talk about air travel in the world as um, a complex um, network of um, various elements, and we talk about how, you know, air travel works, we can use that to make hypotheses or ideas about how um, any network works, including a brain network. But, you know, physically, that three pound blob of gray stuff between your ears is really um, approximately, you know, give or take about 128 billion neurons plus, you know, 80 billion or so glial cells give or take, um, all bathed in a chemical system, a chemical, you know, bath of neurotransmitters and neuromodulators. And that is your brain. I mean, there's also other stuff like, you know, um, you know, vascular, like, um, veins and arteries and things like that, but that's basically your brain. It's, it's, um, you know, billions and billions and billions of little elements that are constantly communicating with each other and producing outputs that are more than the sum of their parts, meaning um, that, that when they work together, they produce outputs that none of them could produce on their own. And so it's a description, it's one description of what a brain is and how it works, which is not really a metaphor per se. Um, yeah. I think uh, one of the things that you <clears throat> explained, which I thought was very interesting, was that the fetal brain, or at least the baby brain, has more neurons in it uh, than, than we do, and that they get and you, you describe the processes of trimming and pruning, that, that that whole process, and also that they then make these hubs and connections, and they each sort of focus on communicating with a few thousand other things, but they don't communicate to the whole, they communicate through hubs. I, I think you should describe that in a little bit more detail, because I think that's a fascinating way to look at what happened, and that we actually are getting rid of some neurons as we get older, as opposed to, and, and, and make it a more coordinated more useful uh, brain than it was when it was young. Sure. So again, there's lots in what you, the lot, there are lots of interesting um, tidbits in what you just described. They're all um, from your book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they're kind of remarkable, right? Like, so yeah. the idea that, I mean, so, so the idea that, um, that a fetal, that it, an, uh, as the, as the, an embryo is producing neurons uh, that will become the brain of that, of that creature, whatever it is, um, it, particularly if that creature is, is going to become a human, um, uh, there many, many, many more neurons are being born than will actually survive. That we, you know, it's exuberant. There's an exuberance in the number of neurons, and um, 
after uh, a fetus is born, that that infant brain, that newborn brain has an exuberance of connections between neurons, many of which will die back. But they're there because really an infant brain is not a miniature adult brain. It's a brain that is waiting for wiring instructions from the world. And different infants are born into different worlds, literally, right? Different parts of the world, different social structures, their, um, their environments are different. And really one thing that a brain is doing as it's wiring itself to its world, both its physical world and its social world, is it's kind of bootstrapping into its wiring a model of that world. And so the exuberance of connections allows the baby's brain to tune itself to particular environments and to prune away unneeded or unused connections. So it's really a way of building flexibility into um, development, like tremendous flexibility, um, because a baby's brain is born under construction. And whether we realize it or not, we are creating, the caretakers of those infants are creating um, the world, curating the world that the infant infant's brain wires itself to. Um, that's a pretty remarkable thing. Um, it's a pretty big responsibility it. too. It's a huge responsibility and it, 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 it has huge benefits, but it also has huge risks for us as a species. One analogy which you used in your first book um, uh, that I thought was great was that you you say how we look at the world um, and that um, you know there's you can perceive it as a Vermeer where it's detailed like a photographic thing or it can be an impressionistic perception which is much vaguer or you said on a bad day a Jackson Pollock. <laughs> <laughs> But 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 uh, I thought that was very good at showing the disintegration of the information you know coming in in, in terms of how clear it is. Uh, are we assuming from the neuroscientific point of view that there's an objective reality we're looking at and that we all kind of see it or uh, see it differently, and that's why we're we're wiring differently, we're reacting differently, and our brains end up differently, or or is it assumed that the there is no objective reality that that because we we just hallucinate all the time anyway. We'll get into hallucination a little bit later. I thought that was another great idea in your book. Thanks. Yeah, so I, you know, I can't speak for all neuroscientists, obviously, but to the best of my understanding, I would say um, that, that there's maybe a little bit of um, truth, if you can you know, scientists don't like that word. They, we don't like the F word, you know, fact. And we don't like the word, you know, T, the T word, you know, truth. Those are, those are really scary words for a scientist. But I guess what I would say is something, um, I think it's something kind of maybe close to what you've written, you know, about the intersection or places where idealism and, and um, rationalism kind of overlap. And, um, you know, like, I guess what I would say is this, the brain wires itself to its physical surroundings. Your, your body is, is the physical, a brain's body is partly its physical surroundings. And then there's also wavelengths of light and, um, um, you know, changes in air pressure and changes in chemical concentration. And these things are real um, in the physical world to the extent that we understand the physical world. 
right? Um, and so brains require input. You know, your your retina has to be stimulated with um, light in order for the rest of your visual system in your brain to develop normally. And in fact, you know, just as an example, there's some evidence to suggest that myopia um, is related to, that is, you know, being short-sighted, is related to, um, you know, night lights being used. And um, when, a, when an infant is young and um, that changing how the brain is wiring itself to it, the visual world that it's exposed to. But there are many, many, many features, physical features in the world. And we, as, a, as the caretakers of a, of, a, of a young human, we will emphasize certain features and we will um, background or even ignore other features of the world. So, um, you know, a human infant has the capacity to hear all kinds of sounds but eventually it loses the ability to hear some of those sounds because it doesn't hear them on a regular basis. And, you know, the brain is kind of a use it or lose it sort of a, a, an organ. So the ability to hear those sounds are pruned away. Um, they can be relearned with great effort. Um, but the, the point that I'm getting to is that, um, you know, really what the brain is doing is it's, it's building an internal model of its body in the world and it's using that model as a filter for all incoming sensory data all sense data from the body and from the world forevermore you you never have you never can pull back the curtains of your um internal model and see the see the physical world for what it is um that's just not possible and unless you have an illness or unless, uh, you know, we, um, we use some fancy um, techniques to make it possible, you know, for a brief instance, if you don't have prior experience with um, something, you can't, you have a hard time. You just experience it as noise um, you, or, it's, or it's, you know, you're experientially blind. Yeah. You, you, you use an example, a cocktail party effect, and, and I wanted to talk about the fact that, in a way, our bodies, I mean, since our experiences are in our minds, and our bodies are collecting all the sensory data, someone's doing the filtering, as you say, or something is doing the filtering, and, and you, you learn it, the brain does it, whoever does it, whatever does it. It's a very fascinating part of our experience, this cocktail party effect, that you're in a party with lots of people in different discussions going on, and you're paying attention to your small uh, conversation, but if someone uses your name halfway across the room, you immediately hear it. And so it must mean that all that noise is, it, as noise is going into your head and that your brain will always recognize your own name. And this shows how narcissistic we are, I think. Uh, but uh, another example like that that I find fascinating is to say you're driving along and um, you're on the highway and you're listening to the radio and your favorite song is on and you're singing along to it. And, and you see a car uh, driver up ahead misbehaving, like cut in front of a whole bunch of people back and forth. And you watch out because you wonder, is he gonna cause an accident? Do I have to be prepared? And then you suddenly realize, no, no problem. And so 10 seconds have gone by. And during those 10 seconds, you didn't hear the song at all. You, you, you don't hear that. You, you're, all your attention is focused on the problem that you have to deal with. And you know that all that sound has, has been going into your head. 
but you don't hear it at all. I, I find that fascinating. What, what, yes, but that's happening. That particular, that particular dynamic is happening all the time. So for example, right now you are sitting on a chair, I'm imagining, right? And so I'm about to draw your attention to the fact that the seat of the chair is pressing up against your legs. And if your feet are on the floor, then the floor is pressing up against the, the um, bottoms of your feet. But you probably weren't, that probably wasn't in the focus of your attention a moment ago until I just mentioned it. And now it is. Um, and so we have the ability to foreground um, certain features of the world and background other features by virtue of this spotlight of attention that we have, which basically allows us to choose to some extent what is signal and what is noise in the world. But I will say that there are, are some features of the world that um, will not be meaningful to you, no matter how much attention you give to them. So if you don't speak Chinese, if you don't speak Mandarin, you can attend to someone speaking Mandarin, but those sounds, you might be able to recognize it as a language, but you wouldn't be able to you wouldn't be able to understand what those sounds mean. Or, you know, like the old, this was also in my first book, you know, the old adage, like, uh, uh, you know, when a tree falls in the forest, you know, um, and no one else is around, does it make a sound? Well, the answer is actually no, it doesn't make a sound. It, it, it gives off, there are, what, there are changes in air pressure, um, but, you, but something has to transduce that into um, an audible sound. And in order to understand that it's a tree falling and hear it as a tree falling, you have to be able to make sense of it. You have to have had past experience that allows your brain to make sense of those sensory changes as a tree falling. So when you hear, um, you know, uh, this is, and this is sort of how your brain works all the time. Basically, your brain is trapped in a dark, silent box called your skull, and it's receiving sense data from the world. It's anticipating and receiving those sense data. And the sense data are the cause, are the effects. They're the outcomes of some set of causes. So you hear a, a loud bang, and what is it? Is it someone slamming a door? Is it somebody... Um, you know, um, uh, crashing a car? Is it um, somebody dropping a big box on the ground? Is it a gunshot? You know, if you live in the United States, I mean, what is that big sound? So your brain has to guess. It has to guess at the causes of these effects. And philosophers call this a reverse inference problem or an inverse in inference problem where you, you have access to the outcomes, to the effects, but you don't know the cause. And so you have to guess. And your brain is using its past experience, this internal model of the world that it's built to make those guesses. It's interesting that part of one of your lessons, of course, is about how the world makes, remakes the brain and how other people remake the brain. Uh, and to go back to the tree that's falling, um, we don't hear it. Uh, but if we do uh, leave some of our new technology out there and it picks up that pressure, you know, the, the, the pressure that was created in the air by it, and then it gets transmitted millions of miles to us or whatever, like we do in space, then we still can hear something and still make a, a, a judgment about it. Just like now, instead of being in a room talking to each other, this is all being transferred to each other uh, digitally. Uh, and yet we can still make sense of it. Uh, so, right, but, so it's but like we're taking our, it. Yeah, yeah. And we take our senses and extend them way out into, the, uh, in, into reality. Uh, with all of our technology and and it's just another way of collecting things 
to try to decide what's going on. Exactly. And in fact, you can think about every scientific discover every scientific tool that has ever been built um, as an extension of human senses in one way or another that we can see smaller, farther, differently, broader. You know, we can hear. Um, you know, we, we're basically expanding our ability to sense the world using technology that um, augments um, our limited, you know, human senses. And we, but, but we still have to do that. We still have to do that reverse. We still have to solve that reverse inference problem. And that's really what scientific, um, you know, sci- that's really what the scientific method is supposed to help us with. Right. The interesting thing about that, the five, going back to the five senses, you, you, you go into this, but, you know, our eyesight is, is tuned in to pick up the, the uh, you know, light waves in a certain range. Our hearing is designed to pick up uh, those percussions in the air. Our, our smell and our, our uh, taste buds are there to pick up different chemicals, right, or, or, or different uh, proteins. We could, be, we could be tasting, smelling, uh, you know, uh, attending to all kinds of other details now that we don't not need to rely on our senses with technology and then make it a, a better reconstruction of what reality is. I mean, there's all kinds of light waves we know about, you know, the ultraviolet, uh, infrared, but, but much more than that. And we have much better, especially in astronomy, uh, much better idea about what's going on, looking at other things other than the light waves. So it's interesting how science has not just extended our senses, but given us new senses, like being able to look at rocks uh, in the sedimentary levels, or, or like the, the slivers of ice I just read about, the slivers of ice that tell them in 536 in the spring, you know, there was a volcanic eruption because they can go down in the, in the ice. And that that volcanic eruption, eruption was the cause of, of uh, the historically low uh, temperatures yeah, for the next year. I, I agree with you, but I, I agree with you, but I would say really what we're doing by extending our senses, giving us new senses, is we're doing sensory substitution. We, we, we can't actually, you know, um, see things um, outside the visible spectrum. What we can do is detect things outside that spectrum and translate it into a visible spectrum so we can see it. You know, right? We can, but we can understand. I mean, we, we're taking in senses uh, through our senses information about it. That information we can now take in in different ways. That's that's what I meant. Not, I don't mean you that bet. we can see it or hear it. Yeah, you bet. And I think, but I think it's important to be as a scientist. I, I always think it's important to to be, you know, humble. Yeah, be precise, but also to be humble and be uh, a little bit have what um, what uh, contemplative philosophers call um, a beginner's mind, which is. Be open and be humble um, and try to, you know, I, I guess the best way to say it is, is this, you know, we know electron, so it's not that we discovered that electrons exist in the real world, in the physical world. What we know is that given our ability to measure things the way that we can, something that is described well as an electron exists in the, in the physical world. But we, that's, a, that's about the best we can do, right? And that's pretty awesome. Right. But, it's it's all limited by what we can detect or sense and what our what our brains can make sense of um you know we are fundamentally a bunch of brains trying to figure out how 
how stuff works, right? Including our own and you, brains. And, 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 and you focused on being a brain, trying to figure out what the brain is doing. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're a bunch of brains try, trying to figure out how brains work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there, there's uh, so many other things. Uh, what, uh, you know, other modern myths that you, uh, you know, have talked about um, that you think would you, you would like people to sort of dispel? I love the, the humble approach. I mean, that really is basically the scientific uh, method or um, approach or attitude. You know, I, I believe this until someone gives me a better explanation, basically. Uh, it's, it, it doesn't fit well with how we usually think about the world, though. I mean, most people are so used to being authoritarian about everything um, that, that uh, it's very hard to get onto it. Um, and I, I think that actually goes along with democratic ideas, but we're not used to that either. So, um, and, yeah, and so you know, we're, we're, we're retraining our brains to be both democratic and humble. And it's a, 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 it's a lot of rewiring that has to take place. Yeah. And, you know, it's a lot of rewiring and it's a, it's a, it's expensive because you, I mean, metabolically it's expensive, um, because, um, you know, uh, there's a certain amount of uncertainty that comes with being humble and being curious and um, being open. And uncertainty is is metabolically expensive. And that's interesting, but it's also profound in the sense that, you know, understanding our brains in terms of their most important job, meaning, sure, your brain does that you have thoughts and you have feelings and you see things and you hear things and you taste things. But all of that is happening in the service of regulating your body, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, it's kind of irrelevant. That's really, you know, to some extent what's, what, what's happening. And understanding that actually helps dissolve boundaries that are really illusory, like between mental and physical health, for example. Um, it helps us understand why, you know, depression and heart disease go hand in hand. There's like a 70% comorbidity rate or why right now when um, people are really metabolically encumbered for many different reasons, we have record rates of depression and opioid um, dependence and, um, and metabolic illnesses. And these are, you know, understanding how the brain works doesn't answer all the questions. It's not a reductionistic approach, but it just brings to light maybe a couple of um, elements that you were unaware of. And that gives you a little bit more understanding of how you can tinker with your own life to, you know, improve things a little bit for yourself. You, you talk about that brain being the command center to keep your body. And you talk about the body budget and keeping it in balance. And I'll let, you know, we'll let the people read in detail about that in the book. Um, but you also talk about how there isn't like a, a particular purpose to, to evolution and a particular drive that we we're, we're doing this ourselves. And so uh, one of the ideas that doesn't disappear is that DNA wants to reproduce or that your DNA has to reproduce or that that's sort of a function of what's going on. And doesn't that entail a little bit of a why and a purpose in it? If, you know, like who gives DNA the desire or, you know, where does that desire come from? You know, people, some, as you say in your book, some people have said God, some people have said nature. So there, but, but in the end, something has to have that desire, whether it's the DNA or us or, 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 yeah, or I maybe think no one has a desire. And it's just, yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it's really, really tricky to talk about these things because English, and maybe this is true of other languages too, I don't know, but English um, is, 
is um, it's hard to it's hard to um, uh, not endow um, things with agency because English English it's almost like in the way that we speak you know so does DNA have a desire to reproduce I don't think that's a defensible scientific claim um, certainly humans and other I think you could say other animals have desires or they certainly have consciousness in the sense that they can they can they experience the world they may not be aware that they're experiencing the world but they're certainly they see and they hear and they and so on um and so i and they probably feel pleasure displeasure i mean at least ver vertebrates probably do i think that's i it's still a question and it might be a philosophical question as opposed to a scientific one i'm not really sure i mean um but i i'm i think i could defend that you know that they feel pleasure and pain um but you know I think it, we have to be careful. Evolution it doesn't have a motive, neither does DNA. That's oftentimes why biologists really talk about selection at the organism level, not at the DNA level, right? That really selection pressures, like how hot it is or how much food there is, or you know those kinds of things aren't selecting at the level of DNA. They're selecting at the level of the organism which is a complex mishmash of, you know, lots of different DNA. And frankly, um, you know, not all of that DNA is, is our genes. Some of it uh, is um, turning genes on and off in response to environmental circumstances. In fact, most of it is doing that. So I, I so I agree with you in the sense that, um, that, that, you know, at least when we're talking about, much of the animal kingdom, at least vertebrates, we might, it might be possible to talk about motivation or desire to some extent. But um, I think that we, we have to be really careful about imbuing agency to things where there really is no agency. Um, and I agree. Um, I agree completely. That's why I asked the question, it, you know, because in the popular press about DNA, it, it, it sounds like DNA was the next in line after God and nature to be the one that needs to needs something from from life, whereas uh, evolution is is uh, at the level of the organism, and we don't know what agency, what decisions make the change, or if it's how much of its environment and so on. Um, but I, I think it's a, another myth that's that's uh, you know I, I wanted to help dispel was this whole idea that we we're doing everything for DNA because. There's a lot of social repercussions of that idea. You know, people who, who don't reproduce then are considered there's something wrong with their DNA. And I, I wanted to kind of undercut that idea a little bit. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we have lots of questions. Um, and uh, let's, let's get to questions from the audience now. Um, first question that came in. <clears throat> I was wondering if Dr. Feldman Barrett had any opinion on anesthesiologist Stuart Hameroff and physicist Sir Roger Penrose's theory of consciousness residing in microtubules. <laughs> no, I have no, no opinion. No opinion. <laughs> we don't, we're not talking about consciousness today, right? Okay. Second one, I, can you expand yeah. on selection pressure? What does that entail? Can you give me some examples of, of selection pressure? Sure. So I think um, the, a really good example comes from this book, which is a really wonderful book called The Beak of the Finch. 
Um, it, it won a, a Pulitzer Prize and the name of the author is escaping me. Um, but um, it's a great book, I will say. I've read it a number of times. And in the book, um, uh, he talks about um, Darwin's finches in the Galapagos Island. They're actually named for Darwin, but they're little birds. You can see them sometimes in pet stores when we were all, when we all used to be allowed to go into pet stores. And, um, you know, their beak shapes differ randomly by, you know, by, um, by mutation. So some uh, in the same species, some um, birds will have a very um, deep beak and some will have a shallow beak. Some will have a pointy beak and that's long and others will have kind of a, um, a kind of a thicker, you know, shorter beak. And it turns out that the shape of the beak influences how well an animal can crack open a seed or a nut. Um, so the weather conditions, whether it's really dry or really wet, determines how um, uh, which which animals with which beaks can crack open the nuts more easily. The more food that an animal gets, the better able that animal will be to to survive and have the metabolic resources to reproduce, which is a very expensive, metabolically expensive thing to do for any animal. So that's an example. The weather conditions change the um, con the consistency of the shell of the seeds and nuts, and different animals who you know different different. Um, beak shapes will make it easier or harder to crack open the nuts in that season. Um, and, and that means that the animals have differential access to food and nutrients. That's a selection pressure that influences the reproduction of those animals. How many offspring make it to the next generation and survive to reproduce. Now I chose that example for a reason. And the reason is that food Nutrition is a key selection pressure. It's a key selection pressure on all kinds of things, including reproduction. So if you live in a part of the world where, or even a part of the country where you have plentiful access to food, whereas somebody else lives in a food desert, that is, you could say, a selection pressure. In fact, money <laughs> which we use to purchase food, M many of us, I mean, some of us grow our own food, but not as much as we used to, um, is also now a selection pressure that you could describe similarly to, you know, um, these other selection pressures, um, which change the consistency of shells and nuts. Um, uh, it's, it's very, very similar. So the um, anything which, anything which, in the long run, not in the immediate moment, but in the long run, changes the odds that an animal's that an animal can produce offspring and that those offspring will survive to the next generation to reproduce. Anything which changes those odds is a selection pressure. And you you keep going back to um, expensive decisions from the point of view of of um, making making your body survive, you know? And uh, so I, I find that a very interesting way to look at it. And, it. and it's a different way of looking at, say, something like inertia in our social uh, situations, that people completely, com people who want to change things are always complaining that everybody else has inertia. But actually what you might say instead is that, that uh, they're not ready to change uh, until it's perfectly obvious that that is going to be worth the effort to do the change. 
in a way, it reminds in a way it reminds me of the Chinese communist uh, situation um, because the bureaucracy there. Uh, when uh, Deng Xiaoping made several changes, he would try an experiment, and then and then it would be pulled back, and all those people would be punished. And then they tried to make the experiment again, pulled back, all those people would be punished. And the third time, which was the time they really switched over, they, they, they couldn't get anybody over the age of 35 to make that decision, or not anybody, but almost nobody would make that decision again. So they ended up with a very large number of young uh, executives for their big companies in their 30s and 20s, almost like Silicon Valley, because everybody else was saying, no, I won't change. Otherwise, I'm just going to go back to a re-education camp. Uh, and that that might prove to be in history why they grew so much in the 90s and, and in the early 2000s, because they had all these young executives making their decisions because the other people wouldn't. Anyway, there's all kinds of you know pressures like that inertia. Which, which might prove to not be just stupidity, laziness, and all that, but, but an attempt to, 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 that this isn't worth it. This change isn't worth it economically to us, I mean, to our bodies. To... Yeah, I think that um, that's really, I, ha- I haven't ever heard that analysis before. It's a really, really, that's a really, really interesting analysis, which I'm going to have to think more about that. I mean, about the, what you were talking about China. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, I guess the thing to point out is that most of the time we we aren't really aware of the our brain doesn't make itself aware, you know, of um, this constant budgeting that it's doing. Um, the 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 most expensive thing that your brain can do is move your body or learn something new, um, and um, you know, uh, metabolically speaking. And you know, for example, cortisol is not a stress hormone. It's a hormone that gets um, glucose into your bloodstream quickly when your brain is predicting that you're, you're going to need it. So, for example, right before you get up in the morning, um, you uh, you have a surge of cortisol because your brain is going to drag your sorry self out of bed, uh, you know, in a few moments, and that's going to cost something metabolically speaking. And many things um, make it possible for you to spend to invest you know to spend in the hopes of getting a um now now we are talking about a metaphor so body budgeting really is it is a metaphor that's not you know your brain isn't really um running it doesn't really have a budget you know there's no abacus or calculator in there um but you know i think it's important that you know a lot of things again that we sort of attribute to agency in someone may actually have also have other explanations that are not, don't replace, uh, you know, nothing, there are no simple single causes when it comes to human action or human behavior. It's really more like a bunch of nudges and small, you know, weak interacting influences. And so, but for example, if you are, um, if you're running a deficit in your body budget, let's say you haven't slept enough, you aren't eating healthfully, you don't exercise very much, Maybe you, um, you, you're, you're financially actually encumbered for, you know, in terms of economics, for, you know, in terms of money, um, you know, all of these things, and, and maybe you're on social media, you know, too much, and there's a lot of social ambiguity there, which is very expensive. Um, maybe you're on your computer too late at night, which, you know, makes it harder for your brain to, to go to sleep, which, you know, has a has a cost. And each of these costs that you pay, they're not like huge costs. They're like 
little taxes, little taxes that add up over time to a big deficit. What do you do when you're running a deficit in your actual bank account? Ask the federal government. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would stop spending. I would slow spending. And what does that mean to a brain in our metaphor? It means that you will stop moving. You'll feel fatigued and tired and you'll, you'll, you'll stop moving. And, um, and you'll stop learning and you'll just kind of go with what you believe and you won't keep updating that internal model. So you'll just go with what you believe. You'll uh, succumb to and maybe even cultivate a silo for yourself because a, in a, when you're in a silo of information, everything is perfectly predictable and that's cheaper. It's just metabolically cheaper. So it feels better. Um, and you're, you're, that's... you're supporting you're supporting the theory that, that most great science is done by 26 year olds. No, you know, I'm not actually. In that, in that I mean, sense, I was, because they, no, before no. they get tired. Yeah. I would say when I was 26, I was chronically sleep deprived because, uh-huh. you know, like most 26 year olds, I thought that. In grad school. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, you know, no, I'm actually saying that, um, um, that, um, that part of the, that creativity and innovation are, expensive. And if we want that from people, then we have to really create the selection pressures. We have to create the environment for them to do it, to be able to do that well. And that means paying attention to some of these physical things um, or things that even social things that have a physical cost um, um, that we largely ignore um, as a culture. It's so it's a it's another angle on issues of you know if we if we eliminate uh, the ability of one half of the population to be creative and do do what's on their mind like if you don't allow women to be educated or or any anything else like that you know then you you have created a cost for the entire society that it it, it cannot make up um, and that any society that allows that is bound to be more creative and and, and ahead of other societies that don't. And in the long term, the competition, you know, will, will be hard to beat. The same thing with just letting people, you know, have one bad thing that happens to them, like break their leg. Uh, and then if you just left them alone, they would die in, in, in nature. In nor- but if we take care of them, then we, we've saved all of the creativity of that person for their whole life, basically. And there's lots of issues like that as to what society will do and not do uh, in order to do that. But it also reminds me that right now, everybody's kind of shut down for, for COVID-19 and it will take some time as predicted for everybody to get back to their old habits because, because they're, they're used to not having to do as much. Yeah. I would say though, that a lot of people are pretty encumbered at the moment. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've been surfing my own tsunami of stress and what is stress? Stress is when your brain is preparing your body for a big metabolic outlay and that outlay either never comes or you don't replenish, you know, you don't make deposits into your body budget after you've had a big spend. And I think, um, you know, if I were to architect uh, a, a, con- a set of conditions that would easily bankrupt a human body budget, it, it would be this one, you know, and then just add COVID on top of that. So I think I think that people I mean and of course you know people are resilient and some people are more resilient than others and so on but I do think that we kind of have to give ourselves a break actually and give each other a break a little bit um because um 
you know, we might be talking about um, body budgeting as metaphorical, but the fact that the, the, the idea that your brain is using glucose and water and salt and so on, and so is the rest of your body. And the idea that metabolic efficiency is a major, major selection pressure, that is not metaphorical. That is actually true to the extent that anything is true. And that is at play right now, even just as you and I are talking, it's always present. It's not always the dominant causal force, but it's always present. And that's something for people to think about, I think, because it, it, there's, there are some lessons there um, um, for people um, if, they, if they choose to, to consider um, the science. So we have a couple more questions here before we wrap it up. Um, one it goes to one of your lessons about how we interact with each other. Do you think there is such a thing as a family brain with which family members are able to emotionally regulate one another, both across generations and in acute moments? I would say um, I wouldn't describe it as a family brain, but I would say that um, humans are social animals and we regulate each other's body budgets. Again, figuratively speaking, we make deposits and withdrawals. And, um, and there is really, really good evidence that um, we um, humans do better when they are in supportive relationships with other humans. And when I say do better, I don't just mean they're more create, we're more creative and we're you know happier. I mean, we live longer, we are less likely to develop illness, we are more likely to recover from that illness and um, and even, our susceptibility to developing illness um, on a, upon exposure to a virus, right? So a virus is a necessary but not sufficient condition for illness. You can't become sick without a virus. Well, you can actually, but that's a whole other conversation. You know, but um, being exposed to a virus alone is not on its own sufficient for developing illness. You know, in controlled studies, something like only 20 to 40% of people develop respiratory symptoms uh, upon being exposed to a virus. Um, these are all old uh, viral challenge studies, but they were really, really well done. So the answer here, I think, is that um, we do regulate each other's nervous systems. All, all animals who are social animals do this to some extent. We do this, though, humans do this in remarkable ways, including with the raise of an eyebrow or just a couple of words, right? I can text a couple of words to a friend of mine who's halfway around the world and I can change her metabolism, her breathing rate, her heart rate. Um, you can read something in the Quran or in the Bible or, or poetry or philosophy from that was written thousands of years ago and you can take comfort from that. And comfort is, um, uh, your feeling of comfort is actually um, indicative of the fact that something has happened metabolically in your body and in your brain as you're reading those words. So, um, you know, is there a family brain? Maybe there's a, um, a, I would say maybe a, um, you know, a collection of brains that are, you know, that are working in concert with one another for sure. Absolutely. This is not one of the questions from the audience, but from me, and I want to make sure I brought this point up that you mentioned, because I thought it was interesting. Uh, very interesting. You said that there's studies that show that even eating healthy food, if you're under stress, 
you your body will still process it in a way which isn't healthy. Yeah, this true. just yeah. Uh, you know, there are these moments, right, where you know, as a scientist, I'm like, that is amazing, and as a person, I'm like. Oh, uh -oh. My God. oh <laughs> you know, so yeah, these are really, really interesting studies by um, uh, a, a scientist named um, Janice Kiko Glazer, who's at Ohio State University. And she's shown that when you are stressed, so remember, what is stress? Stress is when your brain is preparing your body for a major metabolic outlay. That's it. That's what stress is. Okay. Um, and, uh, and chronic stress is where that keeps happening and you're not, you know, replenishing what you've spent and good stress, like exercising is where you, you make that metabolic outlay, but it's like an investment for the future. And then you immediately replenish, you drink, you eat, you sleep, whatever. So what Janice Kiko Glazer has shown is that if you're stressed within you know, a day of eating, you know, like within a couple of hours uh, or a day of eating something, you're, you're basically, your, your body is metabolizing the efficiency with which it metabolizes food is reduced. And so essentially that adds a little tax. Um, and that tax is the equivalent of about 104 calories to your, to your meal. And so if you add that up over a year, that's of meals. That's like 11 pounds, 11 pounds that you could gain just by eating super healthy food. But when you're stressed, that's really, really cool um, from a scientific standpoint and utterly horrifying, <laughs> um, you know, as a, as a person, I, for, I would say anyways. Science never promises that the answers that it comes up with are going to make us feel good about what we're doing. <laughs> Um, now, this this you answered before, but I, I think it's a, a good point to, to bring up again, just so that you can nail it one more time. Are emotions controlling most people's thinking from that portion of our brain being dominant, or is that mostly a familial cultural factor? So you, you, you've already said it's not in a part of your brain, so... Yeah, there's no part of your brain for emotion and no other part of your brain for rationality. That's just wrong. I mean, there's just so much evidence um, to, to suggest otherwise, but... But there is a there is a, a a grain of something very very important, a little gem in this question that I think is really important, and that's the following: your brain is always running a budget for your body. It's always controlling the systems of your body, always, from the moment you draw your first breath until the moment you draw your last. And your body is always sending sense data back to your brain. That's how your brain know, can, you know, that's how your brain can um, learn something new about your body, um, like if there's tissue damage or something's happening. And it's how, your, it's how your brain controls, essentially, your body. There has to be that continual conversation. You are not wired. Most of us are not wired. With neurotypical brains, we are not wired to experience those sense data coming from our bodies, from our hearts pumping and our lungs expanding and our liver producing bile and so on. You know, we don't experience the sensations with the same degree of precision or um, vividness as we see or we hear. So, and you know, even think about it, like when you, when you have appendicitis, what do you feel? You feel kind of a dull ache in your abdomen you, you, you don't know where, you don't know what's wrong. There's just kind of dull, achy feeling until right before 
the moments before your appendix is about to burst. And that's when you feel the very specific pain in a very specific spot. So how um, do we, how does a brain kind of keep a handle on what's going on in the body? And the answer is evolution has fashioned us with simple feelings, feeling pleasant, feeling unpleasant, feeling kind of worked up or feeling calm, feeling comfortable, feeling uncomfortable. So we don't experience all the sensations in their high dimensional detail from the body. Instead, we have this kind of like general barometer where we feel good or not so good, you know, kind of crappy or, or okay. And these feelings people call mood um, or, um, you know, scientists like me will call them affect with an A, affect. These affective feelings are, are always with you. Sometimes they're in the foreground, sometimes they're in the background, but they're really always there because your brain's always controlling your body and your body's always sending data back to your brain. And so you are never in a moment without feeling. These feelings are not emotions. You know, these feelings are, they're simpler feelings that your brain uses when it's creating emotions, sometimes these feelings become emotions like your brain will, will use them as ingredients in a sense to make emotions. But sometimes these feelings are, you experience them as perceptions of the world. Like that's a delicious drink. That's a really nice guy. That's a beautiful painting. That guy's an asshole because he cut me off on the highway, right? We embed, we can also embed these feelings in our perceptions of the world. So the idea that you would ever have a thought um, that, um, it, you know, is free from feeling is, is a myth. Your brain wiring doesn't allow that unless you don't, maybe, you know, we're talking about neurotypical brains here. Your brain wiring ensures that you will always have some feeling. These feelings are like properties of consciousness to some extent. They could be in the background, they could be in the foreground, but they're always there. And what I would say is that traditionally we think about causation as thoughts causing feelings, but there's very good reason to suspect that the sense data from your body, which you experience as feelings are actually setting the stage for causing the next round of thoughts that happen. So it's way, not yeah. exact. It's yeah. It's a little bit the other way around. There's a lot, a lot of intuition versus intellect uh, discussion uh, in in philosophy as well as to what's more basic. Um, we have uh, time for one last question, which would be a, a great, great way to finish this off. And uh, it is: How is the way we are evolving as a species affected by our evolving understanding of the brain? So, how is your work going to affect our evolution? Well, I, uh, that's a fantastic question. First time anybody's asked me that question. So um, I, uh, I have uh, great gratitude to the person who asked that question. The whole reason for writing this book, actually, um, there is not one reason, but one of the reasons was um, I, want, I wanted to give people a little bit of knowledge about the brain so to sort of entertain people, obviously, and to, you know, to, to, to make them have dazzling conversations at dinner parties and so on. But, um, but also because I think that, that there are some, I really think about philosophy and science as, um, you know, tools for living, tools for living a life well. And there are some things about the brain that really do have serious 
implications for how we treat each other, how we raise our children, for policy decisions about, say, poverty, childhood poverty. In the book, I, I try really hard not to tell people what to think. Um, uh, occasionally, I do sort of take off my lab coat and say, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let my opinion become clear here. But mostly what I'm trying to do is just to get people to think, to invite them to think. And if, uh, you know, for example, you know, the risk of there, there's great benefit in having um, a brain that is born under construction, but there are also great risks. And those risks um, are um, preventable in, in many cases. And, and so that's something that we should be thinking about as a, as a society for, for all the reasons, George, that you, that you mentioned uh, um, about, you know, um, thinking about um, capital, sort of human capital and, um, and innovation and, and creativity and so on. Um, and so there are some things that we think about in political terms, like whether children should be separated from their caregivers at the border. Um, and you can debate the political, you can debate that politically all you want, but the biology is pretty clear, I think, on this point about whether or not harm will be done to those children and who exactly is responsible for that harm. So um, I, the damage is clear. And so, yes, I, I do. I would not be so lofty as to say that I hope that we can change our own um, evolution by um, understanding more about the brain. I, I wouldn't have put it that way to myself when I was writing this, but I guess, yes, in the end, that is, I am hoping that in some ways that that will happen um, at least on certain, on certain points where I think the evidence is, is really clear. Um, you know, we live, for example, here's another example. We live in a culture of, of casual brutality. Um, we, and when anyone mentions this, um, you know, they get called a, a snowflake or weak or whatever. But, you know, the words that we speak to each other impact um, our body budgets and impact our nervous systems, not because we're snowflakes, not because we're weak, but because we're human. And you might think of this as a political issue, but it's a public health crisis. It's a public health issue, actually. And it doesn't really matter what your political beliefs are. It doesn't really matter whether you believe it's happening at all, because beliefs don't matter to what's actually happening under the hood in this regard. And so you should be aware of that. And whether that has any effect, I don't know, but hopefully it will. Yeah. And, and from the point of view of the way you've described it in your book and everything, and it's a little bit like saying that even though it's metabolically expensive to us, we should develop a better civilization. Well, you know, we, we exercise. Yeah. We exercise, you know, we, we, make it, we make big metabolic investments as investments because we expect them to pay off in the future. That's what exercise is. And if we're smart, we prepare ourselves. You know, you have a protein drink before you exercise and then you have water afterwards and you make sure you get a good night's sleep. You know, democracy requires that we learn from each other and talk to each other and expose ourselves to ideas that uh, we don't like and that we might even find super offensive. And like exercise, you could say that is a very good investment, but you have to prepare yourself for that investment. 
So I hope everybody who's been listening today uh, had a protein drink before and takes a drink of water <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> uh, thank you very, very much, Lisa. That was uh, really a great discussion. And so ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.